Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio, back with our good friend Paul Joseph Watson. You may have heard of him from, well, everywhere uh, these days. He is the editor-at-large of Infowars.com, and you can find him on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Prison Planet Live, and on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Prison Planet. Paul, how are you doing today? Hey, Stefan. Good to be back. So now we look to France and Le Pen's election uh, or the French election coming up uh, in two weeks. And it seems to me pretty crucial. This is a time to really try and motivate uh, ourselves and the French electorate as much as humanly possible. What do you think are the major issues you want to get across to the French electorate in these uh, weeks coming up? Well, I think it's how Marine Le Pen has framed it, which again is in the Brexit model. It's globalization versus nationalism. Now, that's interesting because other people, including those within her own campaign, like her niece, want to frame it as a left-right issue. But the intellectuals within her party want to frame it in a more kind of Brexit con- context. And I think that's that's how it should be looked at. The positive aspect of all this, which differs somewhat from Brexit and Trump, and this was amazing to me once I discovered it, 39% of young people aged 18 to 24 in France support Marine Le Pen. 39%. That is almost double those that support Macron, who we can go on to talk about in a minute. But that's huge. I didn't know that. That is absolutely huge. And it, it goes right to the point of, you know, what I've said on Twitter over and over again and being laughed at by the left for saying it because it really scares them when you say it is well, first, conservatism is the new counterculture or populism is the new counterculture. And we're seeing more and more examples of that. And we're seeing it in France. Huge youth support for Marine Le Pen. And it's partly down to the um, the youth unemployment rate in France, which is 24%. So obviously, you're going to have a lot of resentment over that. But it's not just that. I think it's, you know, this sense of, of national identity, which is being lost in almost all European countries, but it's keenly felt in France because their sense of national identity is a lot stronger than, for example, it is in the United Kingdom or many other European countries. And a lot of young people are becoming, whether you want to call it nationalist or populist, it's it's resonating with so many young people now, Stefan. The messages I get, I talk about all these similar kind of issues, like half of them are from 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds. They're watching me. They're watching your channel. They're watching Stephen Crowder. Conservatism is the new counterculture. It's not just a glib phrase. Obviously, the majority of young people in the West aren't conservatives, aren't populists. But that growth curve is so massive. And now it's being seen in France where, you know, this is a flip. From the last election, Marine Le Pen had a lot more support amongst the general population compared to the young population. Now it's, it's the youth movement behind her is so strong. They used to have to go out and put National Front posters up in the middle of the night armed with baseball bats because they would get attacked. Now they're doing it in the middle of the day. They're proud of it. She's she's uh, destigmatized it from the days of her father. She's detoxified it. And there's there's huge support amongst young people. And going even if she loses, you know, five years time, you've got her niece. She may she may run again. Marine may run again in five years. So you know, very hopeful prospects going forward. Given that there's so much energy amongst millennials and even Generation Z behind her ideas, 
behind her nationalist um, ideas. That's what's driving the whole movement. And it's funny to me because, of course, in, in Brexit, it was the older generation. Boomers have a lot to answer for, but they redeemed themselves to some degree with uh, Brexit in that it was the older generation who voted more for Brexit than the younger generation. But it may be a little bit different in France when it comes to an understanding of demographics, an understanding of criminal patterns and criminality and so on, and the need for some sort of borders. It seems to sort of flipped over from where it was in England. Yeah, exactly. And, and again, it's it's also youth unemployment. Like the youth unemployment in Britain is probably nine, ten percent. In France, it's twenty four percent. And most of those jobs are temporary jobs. They're not going to last a while. They don't have all the associated perks and protections. So, I mean, that is huge. If you're just coming out of college in France and you got absolutely no prospects, then that's that's going to be a motivating factor. Whereas, as you said, in Brexit, it was mainly older people that voted for Brexit. But again, that that is huge. And again, but it's also the national identity thing. We hear so many times, Stefan, about this, you know, hangover of humiliation that French people live through. And it's passed down through the generations of being conquered, of being occupied by the Nazis. And I think that is starting, although they would, you know, the left would decry it as fascism. It's actually a reaction to that. It's a Gaullist sentiment. Most of the uh, young Le Pen supporters are big Charles de Gaulle fans as well. So it's it's that kind of uh, proud French national identity that was a rejection of fascism that is coming back and driving support for Marine Le Pen because she's really the only candidate that is is a nationalist candidate. It is strange to me, I mean, that, that there's some sort of denigration to the French population as a whole with regards to the Nazi occupation, because it was the elites that set up the Vichy government that cooperated with the Nazis. The average French citizens were the ones who manned the resistance and fought back in a way. I mean, there was the war was badly run on the part. They, they thought the Maginot Line would hold forever. The, the war was badly fought on the part of the government. The government capitulated, and it was the citizens who resisted Nazis. But somehow now the citizens are implicated or... or, or uh, somehow to blame for what happened in the 1940s no i mean and they will they will use that to uh, try and convince people against voting for marine le pen just like in germany they use the guilt over that to invite in the refugees and i mean that again that's another reason why she's getting a lot of support i went to paris just after the massacre in november 2015 went back again in december 2016 and even in that 13 month period you could tell there was a huge change because this wasn't just about Calais. This was this was about people getting into the country. You know, we went for a trip there in December 2016 and we were aware of the problems that there'd been brawls between these different migrant groups in these different areas of Paris. We knew about the problems, but it's okay because we're st- staying in a nice part of Paris, far away from all these problems. So we're driving in towards the hotel And we drive through like a temporary migrant camp that's just in the middle of the street, you know, trash everywhere, aggressive people picking fights with each other. And it's like, oh, it's okay. We're in the nice area. Turn the corner, the sat-nav, you have arrived at your destination. So it's not, it's not, you know, squirreled out to the ghetto areas of Paris anymore. It's right in the center. It's not just in the tourist areas. It's in like the arty areas and the, the nice areas where you would stay. So, just in that one year gap, I noticed a huge difference, like mattresses on the streets, uh, people fighting, aggressive individuals. You could tell that they, they have a, a massive problem there. And again, that's going to be brought to bear in the election. We, we've seen the riots, you know, alleged mistreatment of one individual, 
even the victim came out and said, please don't riot. We're sorting this out. And yet those riots went on for what? Two weeks over that one incident. They then had other riots over another incident. So again, that's all playing into this sense of dislocation, this loss of identity and community in France, especially in the cities. And that's going to be brought to bear. When you look out to the countryside, it's a similar thing to the Trump flyover effect. There's a lot of resentment. There's a lot of sense that people in the rural areas have been left behind. They've been forgotten in favor of people in the big cities. And that goes back to the basic um, way of thinking in France, which is everybody hates Parisians. Like literally everybody (laughs) who doesn't live in a major city in France absolutely detests Parisians, sees them as part of this poncy, pretentious elite. So again, those resentments are now being felt more keenly than ever. And that's going to play into the election as well, as is the fact that they've had 20 Islamist terror attacks since January 2015. It's probably more now. That was like a month ago. Seems to be every week at this point. But since Charlie Hebdo, 20 Islamist terror attacks in France. That is absolutely horrific. We saw what happened in Nice. We saw what happened in Paris. And that's playing into it as well. Um, They had a poll which was uh, conducted of students in ghetto areas of France. 33% of the students they polled, the Muslim students, considered it acceptable to participate in violent actions for their ideas, otherwise known as terrorism. So these problems aren't going away. The ghettoization is getting worse. And uh, Marine Le Pen, at least, has promised to address it, unlike the other candidates. Well, I'm sure that other people, and we saw this with Trump as well, that the other candidates will try to adopt her positions as a sort of solve or a supplicant to the voters as a whole. And to me, anyone who comes to the uh, Le Pen positions this late of the game is just saying stuff to manipulate the um, the voters, and I wouldn't trust them at all. But it's a really strange thing, and I don't know how it's portrayed in the French press, but certainly overseas – There's this very bizarre phenomenon for me, Paul, which is where Marine Le Pen is called extreme right or far right. Now, economically, she's, you know, somewhat lefty. You know, she's not exactly a uh, a classical liberal, tiny government, free market kind of individual. But it it seems to have reframed that the whole political spectrum seems to have been reframed that if you want any kind of borders to your country, you're essentially Mussolini. And what a bizarre thing. I mean, these are borders that millions and millions of French people and other allies as well to France for hundreds, if not thousands of years have fought to to maintain, to keep a particular culture that's been developed. And it's, it's so weird that it's an extreme right position uh, now to simply say, let's have some borders and let's review immigration to see if it's a benefit to the domestic population. No, exactly. I mean, uh, what what's funny about it, though, is some of, some of Marine Le Pen's voters, like the base, think that she's actually going soft. If you look at the policies of her niece, she's actually stronger in the sense of uh, saying that Islam has no place in contemporary society in France. So some of Marine Le Pen's base voters actually think she's getting too soft on that now, which kind of, kind of reminds me of something else, which we'll get onto later. But it's an interesting little thing that's happening within the party there. But, I mean, you look at who she's up against. You mentioned, you know, the other candidates there. Macron, of course, her main challenge right now 
according to the way to deal with terrorism was to spy on people's Skype chats and to have companies hand over encrypted information chats for example which shows one he doesn't even understand encryption they can't even read those messages they're encrypted they would be handing over gobbledygook no one would be able to make sense of it and again the solution to terrorism is not to spy on french people's skype chats it's to stop rigging terrorists coming into the country to stop inviting them into the country stefan you've got a situation now where libya People have got this idea of the migrant crisis. One, as you've made the point over and over again, they're not refugees, the vast majority of them. They're not Syrian, the vast majority of them. But most of them don't even really need to struggle and try that hard to get to these European countries, including France. They've got NGO boats, and it's the typical Antifa left-wing crowd that you've seen helping migrants storm boats in Calais. They've got NGO boats and EU boats who go to Libya, 11 miles off the coast of Libya, having been called, you know, an hour beforehand by these people smugglers. They make, they're making deals to pick up these migrants from 11 miles off the coast of Libya. And they're West African. They're coming from West African countries. They're not even Libyans. And it's a direct line of communication between these NGOs who are sending out the boats and the EU who are sending out the boats, literally as a taxi service to pick up these migrants 11 miles off the coast of Libya. You know, they've paid a people smuggler like $2,000 to get on this boat, which sinks half of the time. And they're West Africans. They're not even Libyans. So it's not as if migrants are struggling to get to the European continent, escaping from war. They're coming from West African countries. As long as they can get to Libya... They can get in a boat, get 11 miles off the coast. There's your taxi ride straight into Europe, and it's being done by the EU, by these NGOs. So, you, I mean, people don't under, even understand why this crisis is happening, how it's being physically done, how these people are being taxied into these European countries. And again, Macron's busy talking about spying on people's Skype calls. You had Fion, I saw a speech that he gave about Islamic terrorism, just waffling and waffling for 10, 15 minutes about it. No solutions offered whatsoever. So, I mean, it, it looks like it's going to come down to um, Marine Le Pen and Macron, uh, which is interesting. We can get into that as well. Well, so let's let's have a look at some of the uh, policy differences between the two, if you want to sort of explicate where you see the major differences are. Well, the, let's take Macron because he's, the elite expects him to win the second round. So for people who don't know, it's a two-round thing. You have the top two candidates who win the first round who go through to face each other in a second-round runoff. Okay, so the first one's April 23rd in 10 days. The second round is May 7th. Basically, Macron and Le Pen are currently at the top of the polls. Uh, Marine Le Pen's gained in the past few days. Macron slipped a little bit. Marine Le Pen has to win the first round to have a chance. She absolutely has to win the first round. She has to come out, not only has to progress, i.e. be in the top two, but she has to win the first round. It's absolutely crucial that she gets that momentum. What's interesting over the past couple of weeks or so is that her main competitor, Emmanuel Macron, who was originally packaged and sold as this populist, he was called a, quote, youthful outsider, 
in the mould of Justin Trudeau, as if that's a populist. He was called a populist eruption from the liberal centre, which makes, you know, absolutely no sense. He's a Europhile. Basically, he's a fake populist. It's actually come out in the past few days that this was all hatched from within the Hollande government. So now Hollande is waiting until the second round to endorse him. He's basically admitting that Macron is a Francois Hollande mini-me, and now that the French people have finally started to realize it, that he's a fake populist, you know, a former Rothschild banker, you see that his poll numbers are starting to drop because there's nothing worse than being endorsed by Hollande, who refused to even run because his poll numbers were that pathetic. Now that started to come out that basically Hollande, has, they had a meeting three years ago to choose him as his successor that's slowly starting to be revealed in the in the past few days or so. And now you're starting to see um, Macron's numbers slip. He's a fake populist. He's a Rothschild banker. He was never elected to anything in his entire life. Also, Stefan, you could probably comment on this more than me. His, he is married to his former school teacher, who is 25 years older than him. <laughs> and he's he's 40 so his wife is nearly 65 that strikes me as a little bit odd but you know nothing political but they're starting to realize that he's not a, a, a real populist he's been basically manufactured in a in a lab inside the elysee pa- uh, palace by francois Hollande's incredibly unpopular socialist government so it's, well, then it's a tragic because, of course, no, nothing spells populism like Rothschild. But, of course, they <laughs> probably put all of this stuff out there, Paul. They put all of this stuff out there before the rise of social media and alternative media gave people the, the power to sandblast these narratives away in real time. So they probably thought they could get away with it for a while. Maybe it'll come out after the election. But, you know, three years is, is night and day, as you and I both know. Um, three years is night and day when it comes to deconstructing narratives. So that which they invested in just can't really come to pass no precisely i mean they i think they had hoped to keep it under wraps but now it's becoming it's becoming so obvious that th- this guy is a, a creature of the establishment he is the europhile he is their chosen candidate so what's happened now that he's slipping a little bit we have this new candidate from the extreme far left who is endorsed by the communist party literally called jean-luc melenchon i think that's how you pronounce it they call him the French Hugo Chavez, which, which given what's happened in Venezuela over the past few years, not a great compliment. Or you could, you know, you know it was, you could uh, look it was, it. it was in the movie Ratatouille. There's a rat that cooks uh, in Paris, uh, and and given that rats are basically what people in Venezuela have been reduced uh, to hunting uh, because of socialist policies, uh, you, you may see a resurgence of the movie Ratatouille, but with a bunch of half-starved Parisians chasing him down with a fork and a, a plate. <laughs> so. He's he's basically like the Bernie Sanders candidate, but probably even more far left. And he suddenly shot up to third place. Of course, you've got Fee on the conservative who's kind of been in the background because of his corruption scandal. But this this Melanchon has shot into third place because uh, it looks like Hamon, the socialist candidate, is going to throw his support behind this, this far left guy. One of his policies, Stefan, you'll like this. Okay, the current French working hours per week are 35 hours per week. He wants to cut that even more to 32 hours and make that the law that French people can only work a maximum of 32 hours a week. 
You know, I work more. I work more than thirty-two hours a week in some two-day periods. So. <laughs> For that to, oh, and and that this to is this, it's this weird socialist thing. It's like, well, you know, uh, the the jobs are like slices of a pie. And, you know, if you have a pie this big and you cut it into 10 pieces, you get 10 jobs. But if you make each piece smaller, somehow you get more pie because you can get – it's completely mad. And, of course, the overhead of hiring in, in France is – paralyzing you know it's impossible to fire people and it's impossible to downsize and so people really resist expanding and the idea that and every uh, employee comes with this massive overhead so if you have to hire 10 employees to do the work that eight used to do you become that much less competitive in the world stage and uh, people just aren't going to do it they're just going to try and tell people well do you the job you used to do in 36 hours or 35 hours now you've got to do it in 32 yeah and i mean it French people are lazy. I mean, let's admit it, it's part of their culture. It's people have objectively observed that for decades and decades, and it's it's all part of this malaise. You know, it's high taxes, strong unions, unemployment, and a complete lack of entrepreneurial spirit. Because again, why why bother if you're going to get taxed at fifty, sixty, seventy percent anyway? But there's you mentioned the the workers there. There was a quote from um, the head of Titan International, and this kind of sums it up. He said, quote, the French workforce gets paid high wages but only works three hours. They have one hour for their breaks and lunch, talk for three, and work for three. And that sums it up. You have employees who worked for Orange in France, the telecommunications company, committing suicide en masse. You had people a few years ago who I think it was Orange as well, they asked them to move to a different building uh, to work. And instead of agreeing to that, they killed themselves. So <laughs> just incredible malaise when it comes to employment, when it comes to hard work, when it comes to that entrepreneurial spirit. And this guy wants to cut the hours even further, down to 32 hours a week. He's actually come out, or his uh, some of his supporters came out with a video game where you can play him as the character, this Melanchon, this far left guy, where you literally go up to people in the street and shake them down for money so all their euros come flying out of their pockets. And then you have to take those euros and put them in a common pot to share amongst the rest of the population. And this candidate came out and endorsed this video game and did like a campaign ad of him playing it. So that tells you everything about him. But... He is anti-EU. That's his only saving grace. That, But he's like, oh, I want to renegotiate. He doesn't want to pull out of it. But he's got like 19% of the support right now. So that shows you how much of a mess France is in when the, the communist Hugo Chavez guy, who literally wants to shake people down and steal their money, is getting 19% of the support right now. And, you know, he he's he's on a tear right now. He's got the momentum. So... Now they're saying he could make it to the second round. Well, good good job, Derrida and French existentialists and nihilists and <laughs> cultural Marxists of every stripe. They play that long game that just drives me kind of crazy. You know, you and I work in very sort of short cycles and, and sort of long days and so on. But, man, these guys have been working on this stuff since the late 1950s. It's like, talk about planting a tree that takes forever to grow. And I wonder how much the younger people in terms of their sympathy for Le Pen and their hostility towards the EU and to the general socialist quagmire uh, that the upper classes are feeding off, like a, a trough of young blood, I wonder how much 
they sort of look at the society and say, where the hell am I supposed to go? How the hell am I supposed to grow? I can't possibly afford these houses. I can't get a job that is going to get me any kind of career. Uh, I, I, I can't move ahead. I can't start a company. I can't get married. I can't settle down. And I think that frustration from the young is really, really important in this election. Because when you annoy the young, you get the positive effect of, you know, they're really going to advocate for change. And we saw that with youthful support for Trump and for Sanders, the sort of two more change candidates in the American election. So you get them to, you get them interested in politics if they feel there's a difference and if they feel they can't get ahead. But the problem is they can be really fickle buggers, you know, when it comes to, to coming out uh, and, and voting. And I know this, I was just reading before we chatted that there's a lot of, um, surveys of the French voters that are like, eh, you know, they're both terrible. I, you know, I don't know who to vote for. I'm just going to stay home. And man alive, if there was one election you did not want to stay home for, it would be this one. Well, yeah, that's exactly what the polls are saying. When they ask people, you support Macron, they say, yeah, but I'm not really sure I'm going to vote for him. The good news is Marine Le Pen's support is the most solid out of the people who say they support her now. She's got the most in terms of, yes, I'm definitely going to vote for her, whereas someone like Macron is significantly down, where people say, yeah, I support him at the moment, don't really know if I'm going to vote for him in the end. So she's got the most solid support base. And then you mentioned with the young people, yeah, they asked them, why do you support Marine Le Pen? And it's because they don't feel they can ever meet the living standards that their parents achieved. They could, they've, they've got absolutely no confidence that they can meet those living standards. When you've got 24% youth unemployment, you can see where, where they're coming from. You've also got, for Marine Le Pen, huge support amongst women. Not in a Hillary Clinton sense, because she's a big feminist, hashtag I'm with her and all that kind of crap, but because um, six out of ten people across the board in France, quote, don't feel safe anywhere. And, you know, if you're a woman on your own walking down the street, it's not just about terrorism, is it? This is the whole argument again and again when people say, oh, but, you know, you're more likely to get killed in a a car crash. Uh, Terrorism is not an existential threat. There is a threat as a woman when you're walking down these areas with sexual assault, with being leered at, with being approached, with being attacked by men. And in many cases, Muslim migrant men. In fact, there was a an interview that Tim Poole did, who is a journalist who visited Sweden, one of these migrant ghettos, got basically told by the police to leave, otherwise there'd be a riot. After that, a lot of people didn't see the follow-up. He went to France and spoke to women in France, and uh, he did an interview with a woman at a cafe, and she said, yeah, we get harassed all the time by these Muslim men, not just uh, hollered at, not just leered at, not just uh, catcalled. They will literally come up to us and start trying to expose our breasts and pulling on our clothes. They get angry if we don't respond to them. And the next thing she said was, oh, but I know we're supposed to be tolerant of that. So there's still this complete disconnect. No, you're not supposed to be tolerant of people sexually assaulting you just because they have a brown face, okay? You don't have to tolerate that. But again, she was an American who was living in France. They look at polls of French women, again, huge support for Marine Le Pen, Because six out of 10 people in France don't feel safe anywhere. When you've had 20 Islamist terror attacks since January 2015, and Stefan, not just in big cities, but there's the the beheaded priest in Normandy, little church in in a village. So it's this idea that it could happen absolutely anywhere, not just in major cities. France has changed. Paris has changed. I noticed it over the past 
year. Uh, my parents live in France. I go there all the time. You can see that it's changed. It's changed big time. And this election is going to be a big benchmark of how people respond to that. It is fascinating to me. I mean, it sounds a little cold-hearted, but from a sort of cultural anthropological standpoint, it's fascinating to me, Paul, to see the collision between visceral reality and abstract ideology. You know, diversity is a strength and, and multiculturalism is wonderful and so on. And seeing these ideals come crashing into uh, some very challenging realities and statistics. Uh, I, I was just reading how um, this was after Charlie Hebdo. President Hollande, uh, we tried to get a constitutional reform through that would strip French citizenship from Islamic terrorists. Now, that doesn't seem to be overly complicated to me in terms of like a moral question. And they couldn't find a, a language that was acceptable to uh, both houses. And then he had his justice minister resign. So he canceled this move. So what that means in France is that hundreds of French citizens who went to Syria or other places for jihad can now return as full citizens to the country of origin. And there is no uh, stripping of French citizenship from people who've actually gone to join jihadist movements in the Middle East. And that seems to me, I mean, I'm trying, I'm trying to get outraged, but that level of, I would almost cultural suicide seems really, really hard to, to comprehend from the outside. I mean, uh, you could at least say they're not going to the Sweden level and offering them uh, benefits and uh, welfare and jobs in the government <laughs> and stuff like that. As they let in 150 ISIS terrorists then got attacked. But yeah, I mean, that that's one thing that Marine Le Pen has, has promised to address. And it, it's incredible. You know, they used um, passports from uh, Syrian refugees during the uh, massacre in November 2015. So again, they exploited the migrant wave to get those passports in the first place. ISIS has said over and over again they will exploit the migrant wave to conduct attacks. The attack on the Dortmund football team just the other day was an Iraqi who had got into Germany via the refugee wave. So whereas the narrative before was, oh, why are you blaming the refugees? This is just Islamists. No, they're both, ref they're actually refugees in a sense, and they're also exploiting that program to fake passports, steal passports and get into the country. And, and it's absolute chaos in France. And they've got already a host population of Muslims. I mean, you've shown you've shown the polls before. There was a Pew poll that said 42% of Muslims aged 18 to 29 thought that suicide bombings were sometimes justified. 42%. Now, those numbers in, for example, Britain and Germany are still too high. It's like 9, 10%. But 42% of Muslims in France, that is absolutely insane. And those are just the ones who admit to it. I mean, if you were asked that, most people wouldn't admit to it if they supported it, would they? So it's probably significantly higher than that. So there was a French mayor who basically got prosecuted, got charged because he said 91% Muslim classrooms are a problem that we need to address. 91% Muslim classrooms in France, that's a problem. No, that's racist. You can't say that. He got fined for saying it. But the positive is they had another poll. And this was the big one. This got really overlooked. And this wasn't Fox News. This wasn't InfoWars. It was the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which is like a globalist body. They did a poll of, I think it was 10,000 Europeans, and 55% of them wanted to stop Muslim immigration, period. 55% of Europeans wanted to stop all immigration from Muslim countries. Only 20% supported its continuation 
The rest said, don't know. So you got 55 to 20 wanting to stop it. That is absolutely massive. And for France, it was even bigger. It was 61% wanted to stop all immigration from Muslim countries versus 16% who wanted it to continue. So with those numbers, I mean, that's really got to play to Marine Le Pen's strength, hasn't it? Oh, I think absolutely. And she's also getting a lot of support from uh, white males. And I'm sure feminists are, are very happy about that, that white males are getting behind a female candidate, because we know that they're all about uh, smashing the patriarchy and supporting women getting into positions of power. Of course, I'm sure they hate her as much as they usually do. And we're also seeing, of course, the inevitable rise of leftist violence, right? So I mean, there's no proof of, of who did it. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that it, it may be people from, from the left. But uh, wasn't it uh, just this morning? Marine Le Pen's campaign headquarters hit by an arson attack, which, of course, reminds me of what happened in one of the southern states, uh, one of the American Republican headquarters during the Trump uh, campaign. Do you think that there is going to be any escalation of political violence, uh, as we saw happening in the populist candidacy of Trump? I'm not sure if it'll play out exactly the same way. I don't think they're as hysterical in France um, as the left is over in America with Antifa. There is an Antifa element, but I don't think it's it's as hysterical as it is in America and the United Kingdom. So, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. But whatever happens, it's going to be... Nobody knows. So the polls are even less reliable than they were in the US. That's what they're saying. The only thing we know for sure is that Marine Le Pen has more solidified support. So it could be absolutely any combination. You could even get this um, communist guy going through to the second round. Uh, you could get Macron and Le Pen being defeated in the first round. It, it's so up in the air right now. People don't know how it's going to go. So there's a lot of uncertainty. Obviously, we've still got, what, 10 days until the first round, nearly a month until the second round. You've got Islamic terror attacks happening in Europe basically every week now. All of these things could swing it. You have union left-wing riots in France. You have the Chinese population rioting. You have Muslim population rioting in France. You can only think that all that is going to play into this chaos narrative that Marine Le Pen has promised to address. So, I mean, we'll see. But again, she has to win the first round. That's absolutely key. That gets her the momentum. In terms of uh, predictions, people have done similar uh, things where they you know they feed information into these ai systems which a lot of people did for trump when all the polls were saying hillary clinton 99 percent certain of winning these po these uh, ai people were saying no actually we fed the data in trump's going to win those uh, ai systems are saying le pen is going to win she's going to win the first round uh, it's going to be close between her and macron for the second round but given her momentum if she wins that first round they're saying that Marine will win. So I'm not going to go out on a limb and say she will win, but I will say she has a very strong chance if she gets that first-round victory. Um, and it can only benefit France, given that um, left-wing celebrities have promised to leave if Marine <laughs> Le Pen wins. Yeah, yeah. We've seen that somewhere before, though, haven't we? Yeah. Um, well, my concern is they're going to end up in Quebec, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see about that. And this is the thing. Like, I, it was the same thing with the Trump campaign. Like, I hated the idea of saying he's got it in the bag because I'm always concerned that it's going to make people kind of lazy and it becomes a self-defeating prophecy. And I would say, yeah. you know, with my last name, I hope that people understand that I have French roots. But uh, I would certainly say that now is the time to be a jerk to your friends. Like, now is the time to be annoying. Now is the time to be that Amway sales 
men of of populism. Uh, now is the time to really push the issue with your friends. I mean, you can't obviously compel anyone to vote one way or the other, and they can always lie and tell you who they did or didn't vote for, but really make sure that people have the information that's uh, needed. This is not something that can be solved 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Given the demographics at that point, uh, it may be irreversible. So this is the time now to get in people's faces as much as French people can, rouse yourself from the divan, shake off the smelling salts of, of leftism, and just give people the facts. Paul's got great information on his channel. I've got great information on my channel. Lots of other people out there putting great information. Get the information and sit down and have those great vociferous French political debates that have been so important to Western civilization and now is more than important than ever for the future of France itself. Yeah, and the, the good news is it just came out today that Francois Hollande is absolutely panicking about Le Pen winning because he doesn't want to hand over power. It's part of the ceremonial duty for him to attend the inauguration and hand over power to his successor. He's privately asking people, how do I get out of this? How do I not attend this inauguration? So that shows you that he's panicking. Uh, The only problem I foresee is Google and Facebook have vowed to educate French people about the election in the weeks leading up to it. Um, by flagging up news and educating readers, they say, on who to trust in the election. And of course, we know what that means. It means gaming algorithms. There was a study by a psychologist called Robert Epstein. He said that before the U.S. election, 80% of undecided voters can be manipulated by Google changing its algorithm, determining what search results appear at the top of the page. Wow. Facebook is always is uh, also saying they're going to do that as well for the French election. And again, that could have an, an effect because, as we talked about earlier, the undecideds are absolutely massive across the board. People don't know how they're going to vote, and they won't really, most of them, up until the final couple of days. So with Google promising to do that, that is probably going to have an impact, which, again, is why we need to get the message out to an even greater extent. Well, if, sometimes I feel like populism wouldn't have a chance without YouTube because it's the one place where you can still get pretty uh, objective facts. And it's so funny. I mean, think about these giant companies manipulating this data and voters and everyone's worried about possible troll bots from Russia. I mean, <laughs> of all the things to get worried about, that's not the one. So where do you think populism is versus um, – globalism or nationalism is versus globalism it feels like that for me there's this pendulum pendulum kind of heading back i really want to get behind and give it a jetpack to get it moving faster because uh it does seem like it's a losing race against math yeah there, there is a kind of sense that globalism is entrenched it's this huge machine that you're not just going to turf out with a couple of elections and we've seen that geopolitically over the past couple of weeks um the positive news is that Sweden, even Sweden, now it took a terror attack, which was uh, thankfully unfortunate for those people, but only claimed the lives of four people. It could have been much worse because the guy in the truck was barreling towards Parliament. A hero basically ran him off, crashed into his truck to prevent him from killing more people. But after that attack, Sweden Democrats which is the anti-immigration party in Sweden, which went from being the third most popular to the second over the past six months, now, according to the polls, is the biggest, most popular party in Sweden. So Sweden has an election next year. We have the the AFD in Germany, 
which isn't really organized well enough at this point to make major strides. But again, their support is growing. You have a German election in September. But as you said, I mean, it's it's a whole machinery that has to be uh, rooted out of there. It's, it's not going to just change overnight after a few elections. And it's a multi-generational thing. And we've seen that, unfortunately, which we can get onto with uh, what's been happening in the U.S. over the past couple of weeks. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember saying, and I'm sure you said things similar as well uh, last November that, you know, let's let's celebrate uh, and um, let's get back to work because um, you get someone who's a populist in power. And this is going to be true in in, in Sweden and uh, in Germany, of course. And, and it was true in uh, America. You get the populist in power who's trying to please the actual needs and preferences of the voters within his own country. And the fight just begins because there is the deep state that exists. It's the kind of calcified state that's accumulated over the past half century or more in some places. That is really, really hard to turn around. You know, you put the captain on the ship, he spins the wheel. It doesn't respond like a moped. It's like some giant slow-ass super tanker. And it really takes a lot of effort to keep it turning. And we can see, of course, with, with Trump and so on, the deep state fighting back and attempting to to rein him in and to co-opt his popularity to serve their interests rather than the interests of people who voted for his policies. Exactly. I mean, let's not pretend that there hasn't been a major change over the past two weeks. You went from Tillerson on March 31st saying the saddest part of Syria's future to what? A week later, the bombs were dropping. That is a huge change. That just doesn't happen by accident. Something changed and it split the base. Let's be honest about it. It split the base. You've got people within the Trump administration who are angry about this. You know, you've got Steve Bannon who opposed the strike in Syria, basically hanging by a thread at this point. He looks like he's the next to go. You've obviously got Kushner and Ivanka Trump, who are seizing control. There was another article today about how Kushner's influence is spreading um, throughout everything to the point where they're jokingly referring to him as the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense within the administration. His influence is spreading to such a degree. Again, Bannon hanging by a thread. But there are positives, and we have to remember that, which is there's no Hillary Clinton. <laughs> At least there's no Hillary Clinton. Things would be much worse. You would have a terrible Supreme Court justice. You'd probably be in a proxy war with Russia already. Um, you know, there'd probably be a million refugees already heading to the United States under Hillary. Trump came out yesterday, I think it was, and said, we're not going into Syria. That was encouraging, although... General McMaster seems to have different ideas today because, as you posted that article a while ago, Stefan, he's back to talking about troops within Syria. But Trump did say we're not going into Syria, and I think that was a reaction to the freakout from big parts of the base. And I think it was a legitimate freakout, and it wasn't just a couple of individuals. This this was a major um, repudiation from major personalities with big audiences who have supported Trump from the very beginning. The, the so tomahawks, the, the missiles, there was a trial balloon to see how the base would react to an initiation of force in the Middle East. And and that pushback was very strong. And I think it yeah. did really help change the conversation. And they realized that they would lose a lot of the people and a lot of powerful people who supported them if they went ahead with that. And so to me, it was never about the tomahawks themselves. It's about what lay behind the motivation to use them. Exactly. And I mean, I think, you know, you had Ann Coulter, Michael Savage, yourself, me, Rush Limbaugh to a certain extent. These are prominent people with big audiences and they were exactly in line with each other, decrying this, saying this is a bad move. OK, so the response to that is not, 
oh, get off the Trump train. We don't need you. We must in Trump. We trust everything he says and does. We have to support whatever it is. No, that's that shouldn't be the response. The response should be, why are all these credible people with big audiences who have supported Trump from the beginning, who have defended him vigorously against uh, you know, attack after attack after attack? Why are these people now concerned? Do we have an issue here? Let's talk about this. Let's have a dialogue. But unfortunately, there hasn't been much of a dialogue. There's been a reactionary uh, backlash to anybody questioning Trump. Trump is not Kim Jong-un. We're not living in North Korea. It's okay to question dear leader, especially if he's backtracking on the policies that you voted him in for in the first place, especially if Hillary Clinton calls for bombing Syria and then three hours later it happens. Okay, that's a problem. Nancy Pelosi, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, all these people suddenly supporting a Trump administration policy. That has to cause some level of consternation and, it's and the media okay that hated him, the media that hated him suddenly getting behind everything that he does, yeah. if that doesn't set off your alarm bells, I don't know what would. Exactly. But again, you have to mix it with the positive. You know, he's, he's at least he's dropping bombs on ISIS today and not leaflets like Obama did. Remember that story when Obama would, they had, they had ISIS people driving oil out in these huge tankers and Obama would drop leaflets like three hours before saying, excuse me. There might be an, an environmental tragedy in this region. Could you please move out of the area? Then we can bomb you three hours later. At least he's dropping actual bombs on ISIS and not the people who are fighting ISIS. I mean, that's right. that's a positive. He came out and said, we're not going into Syria. And clearly there's a struggle. I mean, I know for a fact there are people in the Trump administration who completely agree with us, completely agree with Bannon, that this is a bad idea for another foreign intervention in the Middle East, given that it's proven to be a disaster over and over again. But now, as this you said... This wonderful phrase from Shakespeare, let's slip the dogs of war, you know, like they have, they're on a leash and they're growling and snarling and dripping sweat and saliva coming off their jaws. You know, there is a military industrial complex that is like a poised avalanche over the world at all times. This is true of all countries, but it's the most true, of course, in America, which spends so much on the military, both domestically and selling arms overseas. There are the dogs of war and they want to let slip and you, you have to try and pull them back. You have to try and prevent them from going going off uh, and savaging the planet. And uh, I do see, you know, that there's this leash and they're trying to get out of their leash and they're trying to go and do another disastrous intervention in the Middle East, which is never going to work for a variety of reasons I've gone into before. And there is this keep them back, keep the leash, hold tight, because that is going to be the tension as you try and pull back the military industrial complex from savaging the planet. They're going to want to go. They're going to want to leap forward. And that is the strain, I think, that is occurring at the moment. And it really matters what people do. It matters what you say online. It matters what you say to your friends. It matters whether you go to some drudge poll and click yes or no, you think it was a good idea. All of these send signals to the administration. The A-B test for war is underway. And it matters people what you do it does there's such a hyper focus on everything right now and watching they do listen to us and that's that's something that's basically never happened before um you know the mainstream media will take it's funny because they they simultaneously and you probably get the same thing will call you a crazy conspiracy theorist say you work for a crazy conspiracy theorist but will simultaneously obsessively write articles about your late night tweets and it was like I had a I had a like two minute exchange with Alex on the fourth hour of the radio show last week, which isn't even on the radio. It's just an online thing. Within half an hour, 
there were Huffington Post raw story articles about us just having a conversation about what Sean Spicer said about, you know, Hitler never gassed his people or whatever. So the focus is so concentrated, but not just from the haters, not just from the left, but from the Trump administration itself, which, as he said, that's why all this stuff matters. As Ann Coulter said, you know, Trumpism will go on even if Trump is taken over by the swamp, by the deep state. It will go on. It won't end. But it's okay to question him in an effort to have a positive influence on his policies. What's not good is to just wed yourself to people. You have to wed yourself to principles because people are going to come under pressure. People are going to change. If you wed yourself to principles, then you can at least maintain some level of consistency. You can't just say, I will support Trump, whatever he says and does. You know, what What if he starts barbecuing babies on the White House lawn? You're going to support him then? You have to, at some level, maintain consistency and maintain uh, critical thinking. You can't just leave your brain at the door and just salute and just blindly trust whatever he does. If he's directly flipping back on many of his campaign promises. And I, again, I support Trump. I love Trump. But he's a politician now. He works for you, the American people. So you need to hold his feet to the fire. So, Stefan, when you see, you know, NATO is obsolete yesterday. NATO is no longer obsolete. Um, literally 25 tweets since 2012. China is a currency manipulator yesterday. China is not a currency manipulator. Um, he said he wanted a strong dollar. Now, that's a bad thing. The Export-Import Bank, he was against that. Now he's for it. He attacked Janet Yellen back in September. Now he says he's going to support her. You know, he called Syrian refugees a Trojan horse. Now, the pace of Syrian refugees coming into the, the United States is double that it was under Obama during the same time period. Okay, these are real things that we're concerned about. It doesn't mean we're abandoning Trump. It doesn't mean we're not happy that Trump is the president. It means that we need to have a conversation about these things. Well, then be kind and hand someone a bloody excuse. Like, I, I was thinking about this just today, like when I was a kid, right? Like, let's say with some kid I didn't particularly like, but we kind of hung out from time to time. And he's like, hey, Steph, I want to come over for a sleepover. And I was like, well, I don't really really want to do that but i want to say no because you know i'm british and nice and all that so you know i'd go home to my mom and i'd say mom you know we can't really do a sleepover tonight can we i mean it's a weekday and all that she's like no we can't do a sleepover you go back to your friend and say i'm sorry you mean mom says no and can't can't do the sleepover but you know you're a good guy and we need this is a cheesy example but we need to provide trump some ammunition to take back to the deep state if there's a strong pushback against ground troops in the middle east which there bloody well should be then if the oh, polls and, and the, the online community and the, the supporters and so on are overwhelmingly against it, then Trump can go back to the military industrial complex and say, sorry, you know, it's not politically feasible. It's not politically viable. Then it's a matter of waving around uh, numbers rather than a sort of personal battle of wills, which can get pretty exhausting. Hand the man an excuse, oppose bad policies. And then as a politician, he's going to be able to push back against them much more compellingly. Yeah. And. <laughs> the fact is, he does he does listen to us. I mean, he call he calls Alex Jones on the phone. They're friends, not so much now, but at one point it was quite regular. That particularly horrified the mainstream media, by the way. But he does listen to us. You can have an effect, and um, we are having an effect. I know for a fact people within the Trump administration look at my tweets as a kind of barometer. They look at your tweets 
for how people feel. And let's not pretend there wasn't a massive backlash against what happened in Syria. It wasn't just a tiny minority of people, okay? It was a significant portion of people. So the good thing is they are listening. And we've seen certain adjustments in the past few days that, you know, validate that. So hopefully that that continues going forward. But we shall see because from what I understand, Kushner is rapidly uh, encroaching on basically everything now. And he's, he's the main guy that Trump is listening to, unfortunately. He was not voted for by the American people, and he may well have allegiances that lie vastly outside the self-interest of the American people. Who knows? Now, let's just close off with something that you've tweeted about uh, recently and and talked about recently, which is uh, ye olde demonetization. Uh, That is something that has hit your channel. I know that you get your income uh, not directly from the monetization, but of course the money goes uh, somewhere. I mean, I've heard people like they're down to one fiftieth what they used to get. I got seen people who used to make six hundred bucks a day now making six dollars a day. Um, How is this affecting um, your channel, your brand, what it is that you're doing online? Financially, it's not really affecting me because, as you said, I mean, I don't get the money from that anyway, but it's. It's a huge hit for Infowars. I mean, it's it's probably 75 to 80% of the money coming in from YouTube is now gone. And that is a black hole that has to be filled every single year going forward. And it, it's a problem. It's, it's you know, we'll survive, but it's going to absolutely decimate independent creators, which is exactly what the establishment wants. You look at someone like PewDiePie, who has basically gone rogue at this point, by the way, um 55 million subscribers okay he uploads a video every single day which gets an average of three to four million viewers every single day you know bill o'reilly gets four million viewers on a good day rachel maddow gets 2.5 million viewers on a good day and he's doing this every day and sometimes he's getting 10 million viewers for, for his videos that is a problem obviously most of them are pretty mindless and he's having fun and playing video games but then he starts talking about how <laughs> trust in mainstream media amongst young people is cratering. He starts throwing up graphs and suddenly people start getting concerned. He's an independent creator. The terror of him having control over a platform that can reach four or five million people a day is absolutely huge. And you've got to remember that most of these people, the Generation Z and millennials, Compare that to the mainstream media. They had a poll recently, or a study. Uh, the average BBC One viewer was 61 years old. The average uh, CNN primetime viewer is 59 years old. I'm not bashing old people, but their audience is literally dying out. The peak, uh, the medium peak age demographic for advertising, the advertiser, you know, coveted slot where they sell the most products, is 24 to 54. So CNN is outside of that. BBC is outside of that. It's Fox even News worse for well. Fox uh, News. I saw that Paul Fox News, uh, the audience is pretty yeah. old. 68. In the primetime slot, Fox News' average viewer is aged 68. <laughs> they're, they're, their audience is dying out. Double um, Young people watch double the amount of... Uh, uh, old people, sorry, watch double the amount of television compared to young people who aren't really watching it anyway. YouTube is trying to switch over to this Netflix-style platform uh, under which, in restricted mode, your videos are completely invisible, mine are completely invisible, and that's what they're switching over to, and we're not going to be welcome. 
You also see them trying to uh, ape us, basically. You know, CNN hired Casey Neistat, who is one of these uh, hipster YouTubers who's got, you know, like seven, eight million subscribers. But they hired him to do news for them, which was odd because he's terrible at it because he's not a news guy. He does entertainment stuff. You have the New York Times putting out um, ads begging for people to write quick articles and do quick videos on subjects. So it's like Vice said, you know, Stefan, I put out a tweet a couple of months ago basically saying Twitter is a leftist echo chamber, but YouTube, on YouTube, the right, conservatives, libertarians, populists, whatever you want to call them, were completely dominating the left. And of course, they all laughed at me on Twitter and said, look at this idiot living in delusion once again. But then Vice came out and said, no, actually, look at the numbers. He's absolutely right. Conservatives, libertarians, populists, they're absolutely crushing it on YouTube to the point where all these social justice warrior channels, half of them have given up. I mean, go and look at the thumbs up and thumbs down and look at the comments. They're getting absolutely decimated. It's not even close. So if, 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 you're, if you're a media conglomerate, and that's where all the eyeballs are going, and that's where all the interest is. That's where the most dynamic, edgy content is. That's a problem for you. So they've teamed up. They created a fake moral panic, a hysteria about you know extremist videos, and then lumped in basically everything with extremists. So now Stefan Molyneux is on a par with ISIS beheading videos, and they sucked all the money out of it. And now it's all going to go on this corporate... Uh, sterilized Netflix thing that they're going to launch. Well, they've already launched it, actually. And as I said, the effect is independent video creators have been decimated. They won't be able to make a career out of it. They're having to beg for money on Patreon. Um, and it's, it's going to dissuade them, discourage them from putting out controversial content because they're demonetizing it based on if you put Syria in the title or if you put war in the title of a video. Oh, but by the way, CNN can do that, and they're perfectly fine. Nothing happens to their channel. They're now even going through uh, transcribed speech from YouTube videos and picking out uh, banned words from that and using that as an excuse to demonetize videos. So it, it's a complete war on independent content, and it's, it's, it's designed to discourage people from being controversial and having non-mainstream opinions. That's the effect it's having. Right, right. And uh, I do urge people to find ways to support your favorite content providers, uh, whether it's donating or Patreon, or you can buy uh, swag from them. I, I know that uh, that goes on at uh, Prison Planet uh, and Infowars.com. So whatever you can do to support your favorite independent journalist or thinker or podcaster or blogger uh, or videographer is really, really important to do that. Because, you know, a lot of people have given up fairly lucrative careers to take a stab at changing the world through, you know, recent and evidence uh, on, on YouTube and other places. And they put out controversial work. And now it's kind of tough to U-turn back into the business world. Uh, they're kind of committed. So whatever you can do to help people out uh, as an audience, I really, really appreciate that. I also really appreciate, Paul, always a great, great pleasure to chat. Just wanted to remind people, check out Infowars.com and YouTube.com forward slash Prison Planet Live. Uh, Paul has just about mastered the art of the short, punchy video that makes you go, hmm, for the rest of the entire day. And follow him on Twitter at Twitter.com forward slash Prison Planet. Thanks, Paul. Always a great pleasure. Thanks, Stefan. Appreciate it.